0: Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna. I am Anna Jaworski and the host of your program. This is the 12th episode of Season 12 of Heart to Heart with Anna. Our theme this season is organ donation and transplantation. Today's episode is an interview with the transplant helper, Jim Merle. Jim Merle was born in 1975 and shortly after his birth, his parents were told he had transposition of the great arteries. At that time, there wasn't much that could be done, so it was expected Jim would die. However, at about six months of age, doctors decided to do the mustard procedure. Throughout his childhood and young adulthood, Jim thrived. In his 30s, Jim started to have rhythm problems. By this time, he was married. Jim has two natural children, two adopted children, and one more child is going through the adoption process. He lived in congestive heart failure for six years. Jim didn't want to have a transplant before it was absolutely necessary. Finally, the doctor said he needed a new heart, and he was listed. Jim wanted to watch his children grow up, so he felt very blessed when he received his heart. He is the host of The Transplant Helper, a YouTube show that gives advice to those in the transplant community. Jim provides face-to-face and video transplant education and training via his YouTube channel. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, Jim.
1: and I really appreciate you having me on today.
0: Oh, well, I'm excited to meet you. I enjoyed watching... Some of your programs on your channel. They are so educational folks, you have to go out and look for him. It's really easy to find if you go to YouTube, just type in the transplant helper and his show pops up. So let's start at the beginning. When you were very young, you ended up having a muster procedure and I'm sure you don't remember it. Tell me about growing up in the late 70s and 80s with that big scar down your chest.
1: Well, as you say, I mean, I had my mustard procedure at six months, which at the time made me the youngest child in Alabama to have open heart surgery. So oh, yeah, it's something that I do not remember. Probably my earliest memories, I may have been two or three, and some of this may be just myth I've been told, but about two or three. I think my brother, who's six years older than me, he was more concerned than I was because he could see the scar and he kind of remembered something about it. But I can remember him asking a lot of questions about it. And of course I'm going to the cardiologist on a very regular basis. And so I'm starting to kind of comprehend that something's different. But as far as the way that I felt at that age, I you know, I ran and did what I wanted to, I guess. My parents tried to limit me, but I didn't have a lot of, you know, real memory of it until probably I got up in school. Now once you start going to kindergarten and elementary school, of course, that's a game changer because right. now you are a lot different mm. than everyone else. So I think that's probably the things I remembered. Maybe seeing the scar and then beginning to understand that that scar had to be linked to something
0: right? Right. that made me different. So it seems like your childhood and early adulthood were spent pretty much unaware that you had any problems, although it does sound like you had frequent cardiology visits, which most of our CHD patients do, why did your heart start to develop those arrhythmias, and how did the doctors treat them initially?
2: Well,
1: I was much older before I had any difficulty. As we both stated, I did go to the cardiologist a lot as a kid, and my cardiology visits were very different in that, one, I was going to a teaching university hospital, so they've got their own little way of doing things, which includes not only a lot of Real doctors, as I call them, but also student doctors. And I can always remember that when I had my cardiology appointments, every time I would go, they would not even actually use the normal examination rooms. Typically, my appointments would take place inside of a huge meeting room, and they would clear all oh, the wow. tables out and bring in the equipment into there, ECHOs and EKGs and all, and actually do it in front of big crowds of people. There'd be 25 doctors in the room, that type of thing. Oh,
0: my God goodness,
1: 25? Right. Because my condition was rare enough and more than that, it had been handled in a rare enough way through the Mm -hmm. muster procedure. Mm -hmm. And at my age, everything was a factor that made my condition different. So all those visits were special. All of them were different. But the blessing behind that is, is each of those visits in childhood on up through my teenage years always went very well. The doctors were all there to to watch the show, but there was nothing more to show other than my surgeons and original cardiologists going through and describing what had been done. To present my case as being an extremely successful case, my original cardiac surgeon who performed that surgery at six months, he later told me after I met him after 32 years that I pretty much made his entire career.
0: Wow. And set
1: his career in order because they did some things to me as a child that had not been done. So when I got to that 32-ish year mark, they had long predicted if there was going to be a problem, when it would come, how it would come. And the first sign of a problem for me was going to be rhythm issues, different arrhythmias, which I started to have. I started having PVCs to begin with, which is just skip beats. Mine were a little different. They were sustained. And so when my heart would pound a few times real hard and then stop, it would stop for many, many seconds. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. if anybody was around like they were at one occasion, I was in the emergency room with that, the people around me would get very upset and nervous because I would be flatlined right on the monitor. I mean, it would be sustained long enough to see that. Wow. But yet I would still be aware and talking and carrying on, you know, (laughs) waiting on it to restart. (laughs) It was a part of my life. So. The rhythm issues were first, but thankfully, Mm -hmm. because of all the visits and because of all the, I guess you'd say professional opinion that was surrounding me, those 20-something doctors in a room at a time, it was something that we were looking for and somewhat prepared to have happen.
0: Do you think it's because you had so many doctors with you for such a long time that you felt comfortable saying, I don't want to transplant until it's absolutely necessary?
1: That had a lot to do with it, Mm -hmm. not the majority, but a lot of it was to do with that because I had grown up completely understanding what was going on and completely comprehending just the amount of attention that I'd always gotten. So, yes, that made me feel more comfortable that any decisions that they would make about me or I could assist them in making, which they were letting me do by my adult years, they were letting me give input. that we could probably make a good decision on that. And so as I started to go through and weaken because of the arrhythmias, because uh, the muscle itself was becoming stiff, just different things were arising eventually, like many do, ended up with an ICD. I knew the purpose for that. I knew what it could accomplish and what it couldn't. And that was kind of my safety net as well to keep me from having the rhythm of death and hopefully to keep surviving. So when they started to talk transplant, I did not want to do that, but I knew it was something that would be there. And it was just going to be my job as well as theirs to try to set the right time frame for that.
0: So what finally changed your mind and helped you realize now's the time?
1: Four evaluations basically i went through the transplant evaluation process four times Wow! really over the course of six years i guess you could say the majority of that fell in the last four but i would go for these evaluations and even the very first one i landed what they would call very borderline where they would sit down and say look we've got really really bad numbers here we've got a few numbers that are positive." We've got some predictions we can make to this. And they were trying to help me to make a good decision as well. And of course, you've got to sign off on it or you're not doing it. So I was going to get to make that choice at the end. And those evaluations, the first two kind of fell more on the side of we can wait. And so they would say, let's wait six months and then we'll start the reevaluation process again, repeat some of the tests that need to be brought up current, and we'll try to make a decision there. First two went that way. The third one went a lot worse as far as I had digressed some physically, my pediatric cardiology numbers were never accurate and they knew that. So they knew that Mm -hmm. I would show certain numbers, say, for example, in the cath lab or in the pulmonary labs. And then at the same time, I might have walked a mile and a half from the parking deck to get in this huge hospital. Numbers that would show them that I should have been brought in on a gurney, yet I walked that. So they knew that these numbers were not going to be accurate. But There's not enough case study to prove what's good and what's bad in my situation anyway. Mm -hmm. So we had the evaluation, went in for what they call decision day, which means that the doctors supposedly have all already met, all made their choice to list or not, and they're bringing that and presenting to you. They came in my room. They spoke for just a minute, two of the doctors. They then excused themselves and went outside my room and began to argue extremely loudly. Among themselves, one of them saying, I think we should wait six more months and evaluate him again. The other one saying, no, he'll die before that. We've got to do something. We've got to list him. His blood tissue type, we don't know how long the wait's going to be. We've got to list him. And so they came back in the room trying to put their game face back on as if that hadn't happened, but I'd heard it all. And asked me again what I wanted to do. And I said, (laughs) I want to wait. If we can wait, we're waiting. And so they went ahead. And I oh, wow. reluctantly agreed to that, but told me then, point blank, yes. if we find anything that falls on the other side of this, we're doing it. And so I said, well, I will agree that when it's time, I'm going to sign the paper, but I wanted to wait. So I did. We waited about yeah. trying to wait another six months. I don't wow. know that I made it that far. I can't remember the dates. But finally, I was evaluated for the fourth time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And in this fourth evaluation, the numbers were relatively about the same. Um, but when I went in for a follow-up appointment right after that, it wasn't actually decision day. It was just a follow-up appointment. But they came in with certain numbers and said, here's what we have. And so what we're going to do to you today is we're going to put you in the hospital and you're going to stay in the hospital now until transplant, which I was already on IV Miller and on 24-7, had been that way for 10 months, had home health oh. was coming in, doing all the what they have mm-hmm. to do to deal with that. So that had been going on for 10 months, really since that uh, third evaluation but she came in that day and said you're going to the hospital i argued i said no i agree that it's time but at the same time we had a little family getaway planned that was going to start that afternoon the minute i got out of the the clinic and we were ready to go i was traveling to georgia i'm a minister preacher at that point by trade i had speaking appointments that weekend all weekend and we were going to have a little vacation and such and I refused, and my doctor pushed back, and she told me it would have to be. And I said, no, I will be back Monday. When I get back Monday, we'll do this. She kept arguing. Finally, she left the room. She came back in, and she said, look, if you walk out of this clinic today, we're going to put you down as non-compliant. You're not going to be listed. We're taking you completely off of the list, and you're out of luck. So you make your choice. Wow. So. You know, me doing what I needed to do then, I called my wife to ask her permission. Of course, her answer was just as stern as the doctor's. So I (laughs) I made a few more phone calls, canceled my plans for the weekend, and got put in the hospital, where I remained until transplant. Texas
2: Heart Institute were offering us a mechanical heart, and he said, no, Dad, I've had enough. Give it to someone who's worthy.
0: My father promised me a golden dress to twirl in. He held my hand and asked me where I wanted to go.
1: Whatever strife or conflict that we experienced in our long career together was always healed by humor.
2: Heart to Heart with Michael. Please join us every Thursday at noon Eastern as we talk with people from around the world who have experienced those most difficult moments.
0: Jim, before the break, you were telling me a little bit about your medical history. So let's talk about you actually receiving the gift of life. When did it happen?
1: My actual transplant date was May the 23rd, 2013. So it's been a little bit over five years ago, time of this recording. Again, I had been hospitalized, as I just said, or what I call condemned to the hospital. Uh, by that point for a while. I had been in and out of the hospital there, had not been a month in the last two years prior to my transplant that I hadn't been in. I'd be in for five, six, eight days at a time, be out again. And, of course, continued on the IV medications and all. But once they condemned me to the hospital, they put me in the hospital, I believe it was May the 2nd. And so from May the 2nd to May the 23rd, I remained there in the hospital, and they had to do a lot of fancy tricks because of my anatomy they could not list me in the traditional way. I was a status 1B to begin with, and they needed to move me to a status 1A because after 265 days of wait time total, I had not even gotten an offer you know, oh, for wow. a potential heart. So mm-hmm. they knew they had to get me up to the status 1A position and get me to the top of the list. So my anatomy wouldn't allow them to do traditional things, which I won't necessarily go into, but it's just a little few hoops the doctors know to jump through. to get to that. And so basically their only option left with me was to ramp the milrinone that was already going in my body, to ramp that up really high and to claim for an exemption status, as they call it, which just means that they're going to be able to not go through the same hoops, but get me to the list anyway at the top. So they did that, which was awful. My milrinone was doubled, completely doubled. The dosage was inside of about three days. And so that huge increase in dose of medication was very hard on my body, but I continued to press on.
0: What does that drug do?
1: There's fancy doctor talk for it, but more or less, it's what I call the, I hate to use the term really go-go juice, but it's that. It causes your heart to squeeze harder, and therefore it increases potential your ejection fractions and stuff like that. So it allows the heart to artificially work a little bit harder. There are mechanical things they can do to take care of some of the mechanical, the electrical, like things like the ICD that I had, defibrillator, pacemaker, such. But when it comes down to the muscle itself becoming weak, it doesn't matter how many electrical signals were sent to that muscle. It just doesn't have the power to move. Well, this drug, there are a few others like it. Dopamine is in the similar family that you hear about a lot on television when you're watching a show where there's an ER situation going on. But there are other drugs like it. But the milrinone causes the heart muscle to squeeze harder. So what you're doing when you get milrinone is, in one sense, saving and extending your life because it's allowing your body to do something it wouldn't normally do or wouldn't be able to do muscle-wise. But this is very hard to explain. But while you're taking that drug, you're extending your life to an extent, but then you're also cutting it off at the end. Because the drug is not something your body is able to sustain for a long time. I've been on it for 265 days. There are a lot of people that are on it over a year, but not a whole lot more than that. It is damaging that heart muscle at the same time. When it's forcing it to squeeze, when it's not normally anatomy-wise able to do so, it's going to damage it. I compare it, and it's not the same drug by any means, but I compare it to someone, say, who used to use the antibiotic steroids to go out and get big muscles. Yes, they get the big muscles, but they're doing so much damage to those same muscles and tissue that the end is not going to be good. And so this is doing something similar. It's causing a muscle to overwork itself.
0: Right. So did that make you feel tired that your body was having to work so hard? Did it actually fatigue you?
1: That's a yes and a no. For me, the mirinone worked pretty well. It gave me an artificial sense of energy and an artificial sense of stamina. So technically speaking, and I've done programs on my video series about things like this, but I did what I call keep my legs, which is just a term of saying that when you're waiting on any kind of transplant, you've got to keep your body in tip-top shape, especially your legs. It's very hard to do when you don't have that get up and go. You don't have, Mm -hmm. you know, you just got up and went. But if you can keep your legs on you, that is your number one way of getting out of the bed after surgery. So I was able to keep my legs by, with the assistance of and the high doses that I got to. Once I was weaned up onto that, it wasn't so bad. It was just the weaning process. I was averaging three to four miles a day walking the hospital halls leading up to my transplant. So for those 20 some odd days, I was in the hospital, 22 days in the hospital. This round, I was walking my little feet off and trying to keep my legs. That was what I had in my mind. I've got to stay strong. I've got to have enough left in my muscles to be able to get out of bed.
0: So after 21 days, you got your heart? It was that quick?
1: I did, I had 265 total, 21 in hospital this round. So from May the 2nd to May the 23rd, if that's 21 days, I had a false alarm. I had a call that came in the week before that turned out the heart itself was not for me. I got to shake the man's hand who got it. However, we're all in the same unit. And so I waited 12 hours or so to hear the word. And I knew that there were three of us that were potentials to receive that organ. And he got it. So I got to shake his hand on the way to surgery as he went. But I missed that one. And then one week later, which was May the 23rd, 22nd, I got my call, but it takes a while to actually get the process going. Right. But I was told that there was another potential heart on May the 22nd. On 23rd, I got it. Under the guise of keeping my legs, I literally walked all night on the 22nd. Wow. My doctors, one of them at least, passed me in the hallway and he said, you don't have to walk anymore. You're getting your heart. I said, no, I do because I'm getting out of that bed you know, you're going to put me through surgery, I'm getting out of the bed. And, uh, you know, I could tell you more about that in a minute, but I'll tell you, it was successful. I managed to accomplish what I wanted.
0: That's good. So, you certainly have the attitude that you were going to be successful with this. And I think a big part of the struggle is having the right attitude.
1: It is. And with any transplant, I'm most familiar with hearts because I'm one. I'm most familiar with lungs because I'm around a lot of lung patients, kidneys, somewhat familiar with all of them. I work with them, but You have to have a heart, a mental heart, to really to handle any of them. And that's why the psychological evaluation pre-transplant is what it is. It's grueling. The whole process is grueling, but the psychological part can be extremely difficult because they know statistically if you don't have the mental heart to do this, you won't survive the physical side of it either because you've got to be able to drive and push and to go farther than you expect you can go.
0: Is that why you started your program? Because you saw how intense this experience was and how maybe with your program you could help others?
1: Yes, in a big sense it was. The whole premise of my program, is I like to repeat it, there's three things involved. I like to advocate, educate, and motivate. And I think all of those things have to be there. You got to advocate to, first of all, advocate to get organs made available. People have to be Donors. They have to be registered donors. They have to tell their family and their friends about their decisions. So I have to do a lot of that work. I've got to educate because there's a tremendous, a huge hole as far as transplant education goes. Every center uh, does its own thing. On top of that, not that they have their own guidelines, please don't misunderstand that anybody, but They've got their own characters. They've got their own people. And so just like with any job, there are some people who come in to do their jobs every day and they work their hind end off to make sure that they're doing their job to the best. There are other people that come in every day and get a check. I mean, and that's in any profession. Sure. When you couple that with the fact that a lot of these transplant educators that work in hospitals, they're transplant coordinators, they're nurses, they're even sometimes doctors, they're dieticians, they're rehab guys and girls, they're all this – They're coming in a room and giving you as much information as they choose to give you that day. And depending on their mood, it could be a lot. It could be a little. And depending on their experience, it could be a lot or a little. And none of these people, almost none, have any firsthand experience with this. Right. So there's a huge education hole. So I got to realizing that even pre-transplant. Of course, again, growing up congenital, growing up with a heart condition, I already knew as much as most or more and a lot of times pretty much impressed the doctors because I could read my own echoes sometimes when technicians couldn't. You know, that kind of thing.
0: Wow. Wow. That's pretty impressive. But to be fair, the tech's job is not to read it. Their job is to perform it. But how interesting that you were so astute that you could watch it and see for yourself. Hey, this is a good echo or "Uh uh-oh.
1: Yeah. See, with with my condition, they could not recognize the anatomy. The repair had made the anatomy. And so they would have to stop, leave the room, go get a cardiologist to come and assist them to try to help them find the chambers and such. And I knew that. But anyway, I saw a huge hole in the education side of things. And so physically, I started going face to face and doing that. And then I started to research. And anybody listening right now can try this out. You search for transplant. You search for transplant help. You search for a lot of different things with the word transplant in it on YouTube or Google you're going to find two things. You're either going to find the lovey-dovey stories that I love. I absolutely love to watch and to hear people's journeys, their stories. Or you're going to find the medical side of things, which is very limited anyway. But white coats, using language we cannot understand that we're never going to figure out, giving educational speeches to their fellows and to their type. And there's nobody in the middle. And you can still search it. You search transplant, you're going to get hair transplant. I mean... I saw a huge hole. And so my coordinators and such at my transplant center were encouraging me, why can't you make this available to more? Why can't you do videos or podcasts, which I was into podcasting and they knew that. Why can't you make this available to more people and give them something to search? So that was the education. And then motivation side, I know it takes a lot to live this life and uh, it takes a whole lot of putting all that you know together, but that does nothing unless you can use it and practically wow. work it out. So Right, right. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect,
0: or CHD, community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father,
2: and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more.
0: Jim, before the break, you were telling us about your transplant journey and why you started your YouTube program, The Transplant Helper. You say in your show that you do face-to-face meetings too. Tell us why you feel it's important to do both face-to-face meetings and your YouTube program.
1: Well, obviously the face-to-face meetings are limited physically because with my family demographic, five children and a wife that works, I can only go so far. But I go to my transplant center, UAB hospital in Birmingham on a weekly basis, generally, and I sit down with patients. Everybody's familiar with me, so when I walk on the transplant unit, immediately I've got doctors, nurses, coordinators walking up saying, Can you go check on so and so, so and so, so and so and so and so? And and you know, they you know, we've got privacy laws. I'm not denying that. Silly as they seem. They can't tell me much, but they will say, go to room number Mr. So-and-so needs some encouragement or go here. They're four days out of transplant. They'll give me enough information to walk in the door. To me, that has to be done. The thing is, I can't do it for everybody. I can go to UAB. I'm in driving distance from a few transplant centers around the Atlanta, Georgia area. So I can get there Could, as a stretch, get to Nashville, that type thing. I'm in a decent area as far as travel, things I can do in a day and be back. But I think that's so needed because people just need someone at times to say, I've been there and I've done that, or as I like to say it, I've been there and I'm doing that, because it is a process. And to be able to reach out and the stuff we're missing so much through the Internet, put your arm around somebody and just let them cry their eyes out. Yeah.
2: Or let
1: them know that I'm walking yes. today because of this. I'm doing what I do today because of this. And once they see that, it's a game changer. Mm-hmm. I've got several people right. wanting, I can't take out of my, you know, my mind. I remember the first days I meet these people face-to-face, and I remember what they were like. One particular was I was contacted by one of her cousins and asked to go see her. That was the first I was aware that she was even in the transplant process. And I was told that she's not doing good, that she don't think she can do this. And so I go in her room that day, and I could tell when I came in the room. She was broken. Her husband was broken. Her family was broken. They were all done. And come to find out, she was over a month out of transplant and made almost no progress. And I remember within a 30-or-so-minute visit, I was told, at least by them later, turning that all around. And so that's huge.
0: Wow. That is huge.
1: I had a child just a few months ago, a 14-year-old, that was just really struggling to understand what this was about. I mean, he hurt. He had just had surgery. He was hurting. He couldn't move. And I talked to him for a, a while, him and his mother, and he was still just rolling around, moaning, and groaning. And finally, I just reached and snatched my shirt up. And I said, I want you to look. You see that scar? That's the same scar you've got. It's just five years older. And I'm doing what I'm doing because of that scar right there. And the rehab people in the room right then trying to get him to do some exercise, some lung exercises and such. And he immediately reached and grabbed that up and started to do what he needed to do. That face-to-face matters.
0: It does matter. And so do you feel that the questions that you're asked by the people you're ministering to -to face-to-face are different than the questions that you get asked on your YouTube channel?
1: I would say most of the time they're very much the same, really. I mean, I sat down when I started the video series, The Transplant Helper. I sat down with intention. I wrote down 15 topics, and they were 15 most common things I've had to discuss with people. And I wrote those down. And I still get a lot of the questions that come right out of the same 15 topics. But I've done 240 different topics since then. Had no idea I ever would have could. (laughs) And almost all of them come out of very specific situations where somebody asked a question and I gave the answer. And then I turned around and said, hey, I think I'll make a video about this because this question keeps coming up.
0: Right, right. I thought it was interesting that you did a show called Who's Jamerl and how you really opened up to your viewers from your heart. I mean, that's how I first got to know you really well. I had already reached out to you thanks to Facebook and thanks to some of the other places that I had seen you. But actually going to see that one program helped me to know who you are so much better. How important is it for you to have been a transplant recipient yourself?
1: Everybody does better when they hear from firsthand information, as I said a minute ago, from someone who's been there and currently doing that, or who you can begin to get to know that is not only dealt with the same struggles and problems and somehow defeated that and come up against it, but somebody who you can also trust for that. And that program, which you've seen, others could see it too, it is what it is, who is Jim Merle? It's just one of those 200 and some odd programs, but a lot of people would ask, tell me more about yourself, whatever, and then finally I was like, nobody wants to hear who I am? Nobody wants to watch that. That's not the kind of information I'm putting out. I'm educating mainly. But somebody finally said, "We need to know who you are, so we can trust you." Right. We're taking this information from you anyway. Yeah. We're already listening. We're already watching. So who are you? Right. And so I thought, okay, that's the best way to ask that question. I got to answer it in the best way I can. Yeah. And I got a lot of feedback. I don't know how many views that video had. It's probably just a few hundred, but. Because people don't understand necessarily what it is unless they clicked on it. But once the people click on it, a lot of people give a lot of feedback. Then they're like, wow, okay. You do know where you're coming from. You have been there. Right. This is something real to you. You'd be shocked at how many people that was. It's not the first episode they've ever seen, but it's the first one where they contacted me and said,
2: mm-hmm.
1: okay, I can ask you this question now. Right. So This may be a more personable question, but I can ask you this question now. Right. I just think it's very beneficial.
0: Yeah. When I became a special ed teacher, my principal told me people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Mm -hmm. And doing that program shows everybody why the transplant helper is so important to you because you've been there, done that. Right. So what piece of advice do you think is the most important for somebody who's waiting for a heart to heed?
1: Someone who's waiting for a heart this is actually going to eventually be a whole program for me because I've already kind of thought it through. I'm trying to think it through at least. It's in process. Somebody who's waiting for a heart has to focus on what's coming, not what's been, and not how long it's been either. They've got to focus on what's coming. So they've got to look ahead and just picture themselves with their transplant healing growing, improving, and as I say, staying stronger. And being stronger is different than being strong. Being strong is a momentary thing. Being stronger is to take everything in your past and to do it better. And I take that on the planes of the physical, the emotional, and the spiritual. you got to be better at all of that at one time.
0: But how can people do that, Jim, when they feel like they're at their lowest?
1: It's extremely difficult to do. It's almost impossible until you get to hindsight. And the thing is, when we're waiting on transplant, the only thing in our minds is the transplant. And you hear people, you hear the doctor say, your family's certainly looking at you this way. If he don't get this transplant, you know, tomorrow he's going to die. Yeah. And so that's what it rings out. I get that. I've been there, done that. But at the same time, I was talking to someone just the other day who was asking the same question. I encouraged him by reminding him that every day that he waits is a day that he had. And so, my transplant wait time was 265 days. Some people wait longer. Some people wait less time. There's no prediction for that, really. Right. But every day that I waited was a day of positive time that I had. And like I was able to go through four evaluations before I had to be transplanted. It just had to happen. Those first three evaluations, you were interested earlier in how I make the choice or something to turn those away. That's exactly how. Because every day I got on this side, to me, was mathematically added back to the other side. And so, with the guarantees what they are, heart transplant survival rates, and people always want to discuss this, and that's fine, but average transplant survival rate when I had my transplant was about five years. Now they're claiming eight and a half, ten years. You take five years or you take eight and a half or ten years and you add that to your age right now and then ask yourself if you're satisfied with it. You know, We all want to be thankful and grateful, but we're really not. We're not really satisfied with that. So what do I do? I choose to be thankful for the days that lead up to that. Because when I was given a five-year potential survival rate after transplant, I thought to myself, I'll take five, but I'm going to add three to it before. I'm going to wait three before I get it. And that way I'll be this age before I
0: yeah okay. leave this
1: life. Mm-hmm. It's hard to be positive, very hard to be positive, but... People all the time reach out to me. They're on the Facebook groups, this is a big place where they talk and they're like, oh, my family member, and you know, they're in terrible shape. They've had to put them on this and now they're having to do that with them. It's awful, awful. I can't even imagine. But at the same time, there has to be a level of gratitude added to the fact that they are on a respirator, that there was such a thing as an ECMO device, that there right. was such a thing as an LVAD. Mm-hmm. And instead of focusing on this piece of machinery, For the terrible reason it's there, be focused on the wonderful reason that it's available.
0: Right. Absolutely. Oh, I love that. Well, I think your show is fabulous. Everybody needs to tune into the Transplant Helper if you are looking for information. And Jim, as you can see, is very responsive. So if he doesn't have a show covering one of your questions, reach out to him. What's the best way for people to reach out to you, Jim?
1: One of the best ways is just to find any random video that you like. If you find a video and you see it, it, maybe it's your topic, maybe it's not, comment below that video. I get those instantly. I'm always notified 100% of the time that a comment's been placed on a video. I respond to that. I also respond to emails and all of that. I read every single comment, and I reply to every single comment ever left below video. So that's a given. My private message on Facebook. Jim Murrell, J-I-M-M-U-R-R-E-L-L. You friend me on Facebook, send me a private message, I'm going to get it, as well as the comments below the video, 100% I read, 100% I respond to. And uh, it may be a response I give you. A lot of times I sit down and shoot short videos and send people back a video. Oh, wow. Just a personal, personalized video because I sense in their question that that's what they needed. And then it may become a show later. It, not that video, <laughs> but I may do one on it because if I'm asked a question twice, that's enough. Yeah. I'm not looking to make videos that get a half million views. I'm looking for videos that the two people who asked needed it that day.
0: All right. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the program today. This was a lot of fun.
1: Definitely a pleasure. I sure do appreciate it.
0: Well, that concludes this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Thanks for listening today. Find us on YouTube. Just look up my name, Anna Jaworski, J-A-W-O-R-S-K-I, and subscribe. And remember, my friends, you are not alone.
2: Heart to Heart with Anna is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network.